The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. Olas Media presents Nation State of Play. Welcome to the Nation State of Play podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode, we explore the political stories that are driving public policy in California. We explore these stories with political insiders, business leaders, journalists, and policymakers themselves to get below the surface of the headlines and show you the true forces shaping our nation state. Thanks for listening today. We have a great guest, Erica Tavares with International Medical Corps. Um, Discussion covers some issues close to home on the refugee perspective but also some international issues that are very uh, high profile in the news right now. So it's an amazing organization. They do incredible work both here and abroad and glad to have this chance to bring some of those issues to your attention. Hope you'll find a way to um, learn more about their organization and we'll put all the links to, to them in the show notes. So Erica Tavares with International Medical Corps coming up right after this. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear the latest updates from the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back to the Nation State of Play podcast. Erica, thanks so much for being on the show today. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me here. Can you uh, maybe start by just giving a little bit of an overview of your organization, who you are, and what you focus on at a, at a global scale? Sure. Uh, International Medical Corps is a disaster response and healthcare organization. We have been responding to disasters and crises around the world for the last almost 40 years. Uh, we define disasters pretty broadly. It includes natural disasters, uh, but also disease outbreaks uh, like COVID-19. Also includes uh, conflict, conflict and, and wars. And so we do also respond uh, when there is a crisis, providing emergency response, bringing people healthcare and health-related services, um, and then we're committed to staying. We uh, invest in healthcare systems. We partner with uh, the countries where we work. We partner with communities and the, the health systems on the ground to help them recover and build back better so that the healthcare system we're leaving behind can continue to provide services to the communities that need it most. That's great. Um, and you're based here in California? We are based here in California. We were founded uh, in 1984 by an emergency room doctor, Dr. Bob Simon, who worked at UCLA. He uh, went to um, Pakistan to work with refugees uh, who had fled Afghanistan and very quickly realized he could never bring in enough doctors to provide the care that was needed. And so really started launching training programs. And it was really from from there that the organization grew. We were very early on uh, looking to go into places where we could provide training so that uh, local doctors could be able to take care of their own communities. Uh, so I want to talk uh, about a few issues, uh, one close to home and then, a, and then some global stuff. But let's talk about California first. So I know you're working in Los Angeles and in particular. So could you give us a little bit of overview of what you're doing here in California right now? Sure. So uh, for a long part of our history, International Medical Corps was focused um, almost exclusively internationally. 
Um, since 2005, we've done some work in the U.S. Uh, responding to disasters, but it was really after the COVID-19 outbreak where we uh, grew our U.S. response um, fairly significantly, including in California, that we realized that um, really there are some of the challenges that that individuals and communities face accessing healthcare in the U.S. is just as challenging or just as difficult as anywhere where we work in the world. I think uh, it's it's no secret that COVID-19 outbreak, I think, exposed a lot of the gaps in our own healthcare system here at home. Um, it showed some of the limitations. And, and in California, we worked with uh, 15 hospitals, 51 long-term health care facilities um, you know, for, for elderly patients, really providing training, medical surge staffing, um, and extra space. We set up uh, mobile hospitals and mobile units so that we could expand the capacity of the healthcare system to provide care when it was needed most. Um, since that time, we've continued to work very closely, particularly with Los Angeles County, but also with the state to really figure out what other gaps we might be able to fill. Um, we've provided some uh, training to health facilities that are in the um, Central Valley around wildfire preparedness. Um, and now um, I'm here in, in Los Angeles this week, um, really working uh, with our partners to launch a program to to help provide additional healthcare to people living in transitional shelters, um, knowing that, you know, making sure that people who are experiencing homeless have access to healthcare. We're trying to innovate and partner to figure out how we can maybe keep some people out of the emergency rooms, provide them care where, where they are, um, and reconnect them to their doctors. So again, really partnering with the healthcare system to try and, and make it stronger and work better. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, we love talking about local issues when when we can on this podcast. You know, when we talk about LA County, I like to remind people LA County is bigger than thirty seven states in this country. So it's just like anything that happens at a county level level, there is just enormously important in, in terms of the number of people it impacts. So so yeah, let's let's dig into that a little bit more. You're, it sounds like you're working actually with the county directly uh, on on these issues right now. We're coordinating with the county directly. We partner uh, directly, though, with uh, other nonprofit organizations, so organizations that are running shelters. Um, we've worked with the Los Angeles County Department of Health. We've worked with uh, Housing Services Authority to keep them uh, up to date on what we're doing. Um, in this case, we've actually mobilized private resources, uh, resources from foundations, private sector donors, uh, individuals to pilot this initiative um, to really kind of get in there, work very closely with our uh, nonprofit partner uh, to test this model to see if if we can provide healthcare where people are and really work with them on a very one to one basis to reconnect them to their doctor. If we can get people who are experiencing homelessness back into kind of the healthcare system, and again keeping them out of the emergency rooms or or further taxing the the kind of emergency response portion of of healthcare here. The state has invested a lot in recent years in, in homelessness. Is this some? Is this particular? I haven't heard that this particular aspect of the issue before, so I'm really glad you're talking about this of, of healthcare for homeless. We talk a lot about housing on the on the show, um, and, and a lot of state initiatives on that. Has there been any state initiatives on this particular aspect of it that you're focused on? I'm not as familiar with what's happening at the state level, but we're really looking at what's uh, happening right now at the local level and at the county level. And we talked with a lot of the providers who are working in this space and really, um, you know, International Medical Corps' approach is really to, to kind of come in and see where we can fill gaps. And so we, you know, we know we don't have all the solutions to this. It's mm -hmm. a large problem. Um, there's lots of different facets to it, but but we heard from partners on the ground, from nonprofit organizations, 
um, that there there was a gap in providing healthcare in shelters and that people were asking for it. And this is where, you know, we really try to take an approach um, to say, okay, people are here in shelters. They are asking for healthcare there. They're expressing healthcare needs. There is distrust of the healthcare system um, among some of these populations. And so the approach here is to take a very individualized approach to kind of have, um, you know, clinical doctors, nurses who can work one-on-one with clients with caseworkers at the shelters to really kind of shepherd, you know, individuals through. Our healthcare system is incredibly complex. It's even more complex if you don't have the resources to be able to navigate it. And so really helping people kind of navigate in this one-on-one and reconnect them um, is what we're trying to achieve here. And it's, it is what we heard from partners on the ground. That was a real gap. There are, um, you know, teams providing medicine, you know, street medicine teams. There are certainly emergency rooms that are providing a lot of care. But how could we, again, go where people are and where they're asking for services and, and meet them at that place? And then you actually have doctors um, and other healthcare professionals volunteering through your organization to help provide some of these services. Is that right? Yes. Yep. So we're putting, uh, yep, we're able to put medical staff in to provide some of these services. Um, for this particular project, it is it is medical staff, but we do work with actually a number of volunteers uh, in the U.S. internationally as well to support particularly our disaster response efforts. Um, and a lot of those doctors, we work with a lot of organizations that are, are based in California. Uh, Stanford University is a big partner of ours, UCLA, USC. Uh, we have doctors from sort of all across the, the California medical system that that help support our work and that power our volunteer efforts here in the U.S. and around the world. Let's take a little more to those gaps that, that you mentioned that COVID exposed. I mean, we, we've, we've tried to cover some of these issues on the show. Certainly, we've covered the long-term care facilities issues. We've had California long-term care. I can't get the acronym right, but California long-term care association, um, which is basically the doctors that work in the long-term care facilities. But you're you're talking about a broader set of issues. I think that that COVID exposed once, once we got through, through the sort of rampant spread of COVID um, in long-term care facilities. So yeah, could you expand a little bit on what, what other gaps you, you think we, um, we really need to focus on there? Sure. So, uh, you know, certainly um, healthcare workers, I mean, I I think it became clear that uh, COVID exposed just, you know, the the healthcare worker shortage um, in the U.S., all across the U.S., really, um, and how how much certainly we rely on them, but how uh, little sort of resiliency and bench strength there may be in our healthcare workforce. And so part of what we did, um, you know, all of these individuals who were working during COVID-19 were also facing their own emergencies at home. They had their own families to try and take care of. And, and that's true in any emergency. Um, and I think at times we forget about that, that responders are also in the middle of the crisis themselves. Um, and so providing the surge capacity, you know, we had the ability to have doctors and nurses come from other parts of the country and really whether it was California was the hotspot or New York was the hotspot, help relieve some of these workers um, day to day so that they could go home and recover and take care of themselves and their own families. Um, and so that was a, a really critical part of it. I think um, another gap that that we found was where healthcare happens, right? Healthcare doesn't just happen in hospitals, long-term care facilities. Healthcare is happening in people's homes. People can't get to, to hospitals and health clinics all the time, and they want to go where they're familiar. Um, you know, one of the things I think that that we saw, again, across the country that 
didn't work as well as we thought it might was setting up these large facilities where people could come and um, have COVID treatment or, or get, you know, get the treatment that they needed. People didn't want to go there. They want to go to their local doctor. They want to go to their local clinic. Um, and so, again, mm-hmm. making sure we were providing the training for those frontline health workers and, and increasing that capacity. So um, we set up medical tents and, and shelters so that hospitals had extra bed space. They had triage space. They could increase their own capacity so, because people were showing up and they could treat them there. They didn't have to send them somewhere else to get the, the care that they needed. One of the guests, um, and it actually might have been one of the doctors from the Long-Term Care Association, really raised for us on the show, and I, I hadn't thought about this before, but it's it just sort of this huge discrepancy between healthcare access in the Central Valley versus what goes on in, you know, LA and San Francisco and, and our bigger cities, and clearly we have issues in the cities too. But, um, but you know, I learned some really alarming things about it. maybe like one doctor in the Central Valley, you know, being um, assigned to like, you know, 10 or 12 long-term care facilities because, you know, just real um, sort of deserts of healthcare access, no, no, no pun intended, in, in the Central Valley. Um, is that something that you see as an, an acute problem? And, and do, you know, any, any thoughts on what, what we can do to solve this? It's, it's, it's sort of hard for me to get my head around the solutions because, like, you can't force doctors to move to Fresno if they don't want to live in Fresno. So yeah, how, how do you, how do you see this issue playing out? Right. In California, it's an, it's an issue nationwide. And I know, I know there's a lot of, um, a lot of people, a lot of really smart people trying to, to, to address this. But one of the challenges is, is that as hospitals and healthcare systems have consolidated and hospitals um, maybe shut down, as particularly in more rural areas, healthcare is moving further and further away from the people who need it. And it's becoming more and more of a challenge um, for how to get it. And so what that's meant for, for us, um, and when we're looking at healthcare programming and how we can fill gaps, is we're really trying to work with communities to figure out how to bring healthcare back to people. Um, and so we are looking at things like how can we help and support efforts to increase um, public health messaging and the work of, of public health care. We're taking some of the lessons that we know have worked so well internationally. Um, how do we use better use community health workers in the U.S. Um, and get people out into um, communities to be able to help people get access to care, to be able to report back um, on what some of the needs are? Um, it's something that that we use community health workers and health volunteers in almost every country where we work. Um, and it's something that, that we're really interested in seeing if we can increase here uh, in the U.S. Uh, so that, that's part of what we're doing as well. Um, and then it's also um, helping some of these community clinics that, that are at the front lines of healthcare also reach out to their own patients. So sometimes that means having mobile units or transportation vehicles that can bring doctors to patients and patients to to clinics or can help get prescriptions. Many people increasingly are living in, in pharmacy deserts where there's no available pharmacy mm-hmm. to fill their prescription and they have to go further and further away to get access to it. So it, it's really kind of working with communities to figure out what the best solutions are and how we can create those linkages. And that's that's where we see, um, you know, we can kind of help fill some of the gaps. What's the role for telehealth here? I know it's not a panacea for, for any of these problems, but but can it at least help um, with sort of entry point um, in, into into the system. I mean, we certainly have broadband issues as well in some of these places. But but yeah, how, how do you how do you see how do you see telehealth fitting into this puzzle? Absolutely, and I think you know one of the things that you know when we think about COVID, one of the things that we found is that actually 
um, telehealth can can have a big role to play. Um, of course, mm-hmm. you know, to your point, you have to make sure you have broadband and access. Um, and those are those are their own issues. But we we've found it to be particularly helpful in the, in a disaster response space as well. Um, we did some work around providing mental health care, for example, in Kentucky after the tornadoes there um, a few years ago, where we were able to um, help augment mental health services through telehealth networks because. They certainly had the impact of the the tornadoes there, but they they also have a real crisis of mental health care professionals. Lo, you know, locally they don't have enough, and so telehealth was really able to to help come in and and provide care for folks. So it's definitely an option, um, you know, in in getting people access to the care they need. Yeah, I mean, mental health seems like the the best use case for all this. And I'm, and I'm not suggesting it's the same as physically being with a, a mental health care professional. I'm sure there's value in that. But, you know, I would imagine for a lot of people, just the ease of access and the comfort of being in their own home and, you know, you're not losing a lot. Um, and, it, it, you know, if, if the result is that you just do it more, you know, you engage in the therapy more because it's right. it's easy to do that. That that seems like a better outcome overall. Is that or or am I missing something here when when we think about, you know, the the mental health aspects here? Yeah, I think it's it's a tool in the toolbox, right? I think to build more resilient communities, you have to have lots of different tools and people have to have people, the healthcare system has to have a number of different levers they can pull on. So if it's telehealth for mental health care, if it's you know, transportation vehicles um, so that people can get to pharmacies, you know, it's having this package so that whatever crisis an individual or community may be facing, they have options. That's what's going to create a more resilient and adaptable and a flexible healthcare system. We're not going to certainly stop any of these crises from happening, Um, you know, whether it's disasters or disease outbreaks are going to occur. So having this kind of toolbox with lots of options are going to help everybody be more resilient. And that's really what you want. That the, the crisis is going to happen. Right. How quickly can people recover? You know, the pharmacy thing's interesting. I I don't think we've really talked about that before. I mean, that seems like such a solvable problem in the age of you know Amazon being able to deliver anything to your house in a few, in a few hours. So, uh, you know, is that um, uh, what what is the status of of online pharmacies and like how how are we tackling that in in, in California? here there's there's you know i would i would assume COVID at least helped us build out the delivery infrastructure for for, for that sort of thing so you, you said tool in the toolbox that's that sounds about right but yeah you know, what what are we doing on that topic that feels like an imminently solvable problem yeah i'm not as familiar specifically with um the, the work around pharmacies in california but i think again to your point having tools in the toolbox having people being able to access their pharmaceuticals their medications um, making sure they can get them either delivered, um, you know, through the through the mail, um, that they have transportation to get to a pharmacist and to be able to ask ask for care. Again, it's just this: how do we make sure if pharmacies are closing in certain areas that we're also looking at well, what does that mean then for people to to access medication? Because if they don't take their medication, right, we're going to just continue this cycle of of poor health outcomes. Um, so there's lots of different innovative ways to to do that. There's great organizations, you know, that are looking to connect people to to pharmacies and to pharmacists. And I think we just have to continue to innovate around that and really kind of think outside the box um, and think about new ways to whether it's pharmaceutical, mental health, primary health care. How are we going to continue to connect people um, in a world that's just continuing to change? Yeah, um, I I love. Of online pharmacies because the last place I want to be when I'm sick is in a pharmacy with a bunch of like people personally. So it's, it's yeah, so 
extended in the mail uh it makes it just makes total total sense to me and I'm, I'm surprised we're not doing it more really it just it just feels like such a natural uh natural efficiency to to get out of the system um okay so that's that's a great overview on california and you're doing some amazing work i hope all the policymakers out there listening um will wind up reaching out to you guys to tackle talk about ta- how to tackle some of these these issues um and in a you know in the tech capital of the world these these feel like things we, sh- we should really be leading on um but but let's let's broaden the scope to to talk about internationally obviously some devastating earthquakes uh, recently happened in syria and turkey so can you give a overview of what you're doing there sure yeah absolutely um and it's heartbreaking um you know as of today, um, you know, you know, the reports are now that more than 40,000 people have died in, in Turkey and Syria. And I know relief and recovery efforts are continuing. Um, International Medical Corps um, has been present in Syria since 2008. Um, and so our teams were on the ground. We've uh, deployed medical, mobile medical units. Um, you know, a lot of hospitals and health facilities destroyed. The infrastructure was obviously already decimated inside Syria. Um, and so uh, the needs there are are pretty dire. Um, we have a number of of you know, we have hundreds of local staff on the ground who have mobilized to to respond to this. Um, and we've also delivered about 15 tons worth of of supplies. Um, you know, it's it's absolutely frigid. Um, you know, the temperatures are are cold overnight. People are displaced. Um, the threat of um, you know, disease outbreaks um, in a situation like that are incredibly high. And so so we do have teams on, on the ground um, in Syria. We're also um, talking with the World Health Organization to see if we can uh, deploy one of our um, emergency medical team teams that, that they sponsor. The World Health Organization um, has a, a classification system to to um, call up emergency medical teams um, at a greater rate. Um, you know, when there's a disaster. And so we're also looking at that as well, which may mean that we would expand uh, the emergency care that we're providing there. But it's been a place where we've been for, for a number of years, providing health care, providing health related services. And, and we're certainly going to, to stay in Turkey. We've had had past experience there. We have a number of partners that we're supporting. Um, we're doing quite a bit of, of dis- distribution of supplies as well as we look through what are the specific health care needs and how how can we support those. But our teams are are we're in motion as soon as the the earthquakes hit um, have been on the ground and have been doing just really incredible work um one on one with individuals making sure that they they are getting the care that they need um when there's just so the need is so great uh, yeah amazing, amazing work I, I think one of the things I always think about whenever there's a disaster is i I sort of struggle with getting my head around what our government is doing or should be doing versus what the role for nonprofits and the private sector are. How do you, how do you think about that topic in a situation like this? I mean, I know the U S government's clearly helping, um, but, but where do you, where do you see the, the gaps that you all try to fill in situations like this? We're a very close partner um, with the U S government as well as um, other governments and, and multi lateral, you know, bilateral organizations like the UN globally. Um, and so we work really hand in hand in this case with the US government to deliver care. Um, they provide a lot of the funding resources and mobilization. They're also providing uh, teams and guidance on the ground. And so we work really closely with them. Um, you know, I think for a role or an organization like ours, where our role really comes in, it is the ability to to respond and to be the eyes and ears and to be flexible and to really figure out what is needed and where it's needed and, and being able to work really closely with government or other donors and, and local ministries of health to help them identify where the needs are. 
So if governments, you know, can provide the resources that they can provide, um, and that's, that's financial resources. It's also supplies. Um, that's incredibly important. And then, you know, we can be the kind of flexible team on the ground that's getting, again, meeting people where they are, getting into those smaller communities, figuring out where the needs are greatest, making sure that we're bringing healthcare to people because um, they don't have the means to, to move right now to travel, to get out and to get where they need to be. Great explanation. The last thing I want to ask you about is the war in Ukraine, which, um, you know, we we haven't had a few, too many good entry points to talk about on the show here. So, so glad you can um, discuss this issue near and dear to uh, to a lot of our hearts. What are you working on there specifically right now in Ukraine? Yeah, we have a, um, a really robust response in Ukraine and have colleagues doing just truly incredible work. And, and this is a place where we've also leveraged a number of our U.S. based partners and our volunteers who have who have gone out and, and helped us support this effort. So um, we are on the front lines of the healthcare response, providing medical care. Um, we've reached since the the and I should say we were on the ground in Ukraine. We've been there since 2014, and so we were there when this this crisis broke out. We've reached about close to six million people uh, with services so far with healthcare services. We are. Um, you know, providing direct patient care when we can. Um, we are distributing, again, these kind of what we call non-food items, blankets, other supplies that help keep people healthy, uh, clean water, mental health care, cash assistance in a place like Ukraine. Um, you know, people can't access any of their resources. They've lost everything. Even if they have uh, funding or resources in, in banks, it doesn't mean they can get to it. And so really making sure that people have those kinds of resources to be able to get the supplies that they need. Um, and so we've got teams um, on the ground. We're um, across kind of 10 regions in Ukraine. Um, we continue to move as access opens up. Um, the other thing that we've done in Ukraine, um, which we're really proud of, is, is developing a trauma care response training program. Um, and so we've uh, worked very closely with some of our partners, um, particularly with Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, to develop a training program around what's called Stop the Bleed, um, and then chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear sea uh, burn training, incident response training, to train local doctors on how to respond to these kinds of crises, because this may be something they don't have training in or have ha ever had to deal with before. Um, and now, you know, they are really looking at the threat of, of chemical or nuclear or other kinds of, of crises. And so we've trained thousands of people to date, thousands of doctors and frontline health workers on, on that as well. And we've used a lot of our volunteer doctors to um, provide that training, to, to go to Ukraine to provide that training, and as well as to help us develop it. And, and I think that's a really, it's really indicative of how international medical corps works, right? How can we sort of address the crisis right now? And then how can we build capacity so that the healthcare system can continue to respond um, as the crisis may continue or as they move into recovery? But it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And, and I just, you know, the, the, the things that our colleagues are seeing there and, and in Syria every day, um, I just have the greatest respect for the work that they do on the ground. Yeah, like, so so it strikes me as one of the big differences between the two places is Ukraine is an active war zone. Um, so you know your volunteers are putting themselves in jeopardy when they go there. So so how how do you convince them to do that? How do you have those conversations? How do you, how do you even think about keeping them safe in, in an active war zone? Um, we work with some of the best volunteers, uh, I would say, um, in the world. <laughs> um, they 
they are are interested to go. They, you know, we work with a lot of emergency room doctors who are are eager to respond with us, and and we're incredibly grateful for that. Um, we do have a very robust uh, security uh, team here at International Medical Corps who helps um, provide that kind of training. Who's constantly monitoring what's happening on the ground. Who's making sure we're not um, sending people into places where we can't um, ensure their security, um, and we don't have have you know making sure we have the plans to move people as as we need to. And so, you know, a lot of what International Medical Corps does is right getting people and things to where they're needed most and 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 keeping them out of harm's way while we're doing it. And so we have a, just a phenomenal logistics and supply chain and security team that is the backbone of the work that we do. So many of the Ukrainian citizens are actually not in Ukraine anymore. I don't know what the, the current numbers are, but um, it's just this huge out, uh, outflow of, of refugees leaving. Do you, do you work in other countries too with these Ukrainian refugees? Or are you pretty much focused on, you know, on the ground in Ukraine? Um, our largest response is on the on the ground in Ukraine. Um, we've done some work in some of the neighboring countries, um, so we're certainly seeing some of those um, response efforts as well. And again, helping you know, like we would any anywhere else in the world. You you see things like ministries of health and the health systems being strained, education systems being strained. Um, you know, as more and more people um, come into a, a country who are displaced. Um, but our work is primarily focused um, in Ukraine right now in response to this crisis. I think one of the things that's been Hardening to me is to see the EU countries and NATO countries, I guess, in particular, taking in refugees, you know, throughout these different regions, um, and uh, some some amazing programs that that I've learned about of um, children and families, you know, being being uh, you know housed and grouped with um, families in other countries, and the you know these other NATO countries providing financial support to help make that happen. Um, it's been, um, I think it's something that this whole topic, I feel like, unfortunately, the U.S. is, most people in the U.S. are just forgetting about because um, it's it's sort of been in the news for so long and it's just, it's just kind of sliding to the to the back burner in a lot of ways. What what do you think Americans can be can be doing here? Um, getting involved with your organization is obvious, obviously one way to do it. And, and yeah, I'd love you to talk more about how, pe- how people can help in that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like if you're, if you're a, uh, just an ordinary American listening to this and you're hearing about any of these crises and you want to help, what, what's the best way to get involved? To get involved with, with International Medical Corps, you can go to our website, which is internationalmedicalcorps.org. Um, and there's opportunities to to donate to support our, our responders, to donate to, to re- support our responses on the ground. Um, and that's certainly um, a way that that can be incredibly helpful. Um, you know, we, we often get people who um, want to send stuff um, and stuff can be helpful, but really those donations that provide the most flexibility for our responders to be able to make the recommendations and, and get the supplies they need to provide the care that's needed is always most helpful. Um, I would also say, uh, you know, getting involved in refugee issues is also incredibly important in the U.S. So much of the work when people are interested in learning about um, issues that face refugees in the U.S., so much of that happens at the community level. And there's great organizations doing that work. Um, for people who may have arrived here from Ukraine or other places, and and if people want to get involved, um, local organizations that you know help people find housing, help people um, get into the school system, are incredibly effective. Um, and so I would encourage people to also look locally um, when they're thinking about um, refugee issues or how they may want to help people who are displaced, because um, there's lots of organizations doing great work here. And um, you know, for us, when we when we think about um, sort of um, refugee situations or or people who may need help who have been displaced, 
Um, nobody takes that that journey lightly. Um, it's not an it's not an easy path to to follow. And for us, we're we're committed to being there when people show up. And and I think there's so many people in the U.S. too who who also do that in their local communities, and that that can be incredibly incredibly important and effective. So if you're a healthcare worker, if you know a healthcare worker and they want to get involved, same website. I assume there's places to yeah. to volunteer there. Yep, same website. They can go. Um, you can also go to, to International Medical Corps um, and go to the career section, um, and you can search uh, volunteer, um, and you're able to apply to to be a, a volunteer medical uh, professional with the organization. Um, we have a great team of people that will uh, walk you through the process um, to be able to learn about um, what we do, um, how we deploy, um, how often we deploy, answer all the questions around that, um, and we always need people. We always need people on our medical roster. Great. Well, Erica, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. Um, great great to highlight some of these issues. And uh, we really appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I, that I should have? Um, I, I, I sometimes like, like to ask that because I'm surprised at the answers. But but any, anything we didn't cover that, you, that you'd want our listeners to hear about? Um, I, I think just, you know, we're really... Um, energized and excited about the work that we're doing here in the U.S. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of, of challenges I think that COVID has exposed, but I think we're also um, just incredibly unfortunate or incredibly fortunate to work with great partners here in California um, at the county and state level to really think about new ways to do that. So we just look forward to continuing to be part of the conversation. Erica, thanks again. We'll put uh, the website in the uh, show notes, but thanks. Thanks a ton for being on today. Thank you for having me. We invite you to share ideas for guests, ask questions, and leave comments. You can find us at NeptuneOps.com. Follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California politics. This is the Nation State of Play podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and thank you for listening. Olas Media.